My name is Craig Wright. You're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Today, the three biggest stories from February 27th through March 3rd. Just a heads up, this episode contains strong language. Our first story, the Board of Trustees approved a tuition hike for this fall. Then, why getting an A is easier than ever, a brief overview of grade inflation at the University of Oregon. Finally, we share a clip from our interview with Mike Watt of the Minutemen. I'm Emerson Malone. I'm a podcast editor with The Daily Emerald. I'm Max Thornberry. I'm an associate news editor. I'm Craig Wright. I'm the arts and culture editor. Our lead story today, on Thursday, March 2nd, the Board of Trustees approved a tuition hike, a $945 per term increase, which will take effect in fall 2017. This amounts to a 10.6% increase for resident students and a 3% increase for non-residents. Just before the Board of Trustees meeting began, a student protest formed outside the Ford Alumni Center, decrying the tuition hike decision. Let's begin by talking about a protest sign that said, We detest 46th best. 10% is a fucking joke. Could we break that down, Max? So that 46th best is talking about how much money universities in Oregon receive from the state of Oregon. Nationally, we rank as the 46th worst state in terms of funding for higher education. Many of the board members and people in the audience uh, cited this rate of proportionally low investment by the state as a reason why tuition is going up so quickly and going up so much over the last few years. And President Schill was actually in agreement with a lot of the people in the audience. Uh, he said, and I quote, I actually agree with the students. They shouldn't have to pay a 10.6% increase. And I'm hoping that the state will see that. The Board of Trustees voted nearly unanimously for the tuition increase. The only board member who voted against it was Kurt Wilcox, who represents non-faculty staff. Do we know why he voted against it? Kurt Wilcox pointed to the disproportionate amount that in-state students are paying. Uh, he believes that Oregon residents deserve an affordable education, and he doesn't believe that a 10.6% increase for Oregon residents is fair. So that was that was his main reason for voting against this tuition increase. He said that he does think that we have an, an obligation to provide Oregon students with access to an affordable education, and we can do better for our in-state students than what this proposal provides. Other members felt that this was a hard decision, uh, but Ultimately, they decided that this is what they had to do in order to keep the university operating in the black without going into debt. So were there any board members conflicted about their vote? The most conflicted member seemed to be Ann Curry, who asked more questions than the rest of the board combined. At the end of the meeting, she did turn to Wilcox, and it was overheard that she said that was really hard. So the Board of Trustees was not out to, to get students by any means. They seemed to be just as conflicted and just as... Maybe not as torn up as the students are about this, but they weren't exactly excited to, to vote yes on this hike. The board also approved a $50 per term technology fee that will pay for critical recurring investments in technology to keep things running. That's from the board meeting packet. We outlined this in our prior podcast about the board meeting from earlier this week. But just to reiterate, why is attending the U of O going to get more expensive? These increases are coming because... The university is looking at an approximate $25 million increase in basic campus operations next year. So in addition to the tuition increase of $945 a year and the $50 technology fee increase, $75 for law students, the university is still looking at being short about $8.8 million. Did students have a say in any of this? Before the board voted on the tuition increase, there was a public comment section when a 
few UO students did get up and tell the board what they thought about the tuition increase. Uh, there was language that from, from the students suggesting that the university doesn't represent hope, that it was marginalizing the poor. Uh, one student veteran got up and questioned whether more students were going to have to go to war and see the, the carnage of that in order to be able to afford a tuition. That's how he's going, is the GI Bill is helping him pay. And he's saying that it seems that the university seems to be saying that's what you have to do in order to be able to afford it in order to be able to afford an education here. This discussion was not a quick and easy one. The board discussed this for quite a while. The board actually didn't vote on the increase until 5:30 in the evening. The meeting started at 1:30. Uh, and at, as the vote was cast, there was a single shout of shame from the audience when, once it passed. Let's go to our second story. This week, as students are preparing to register for spring classes, the Emerald published a story written by Associate News Editor Will Campbell, Why Getting an A is Easier Than Ever. In 1980, the average UO student's GPA was 2.6. In 2016, that number was 3.13. UO students are receiving better grades without evidence that they are performing at a higher level. This national phenomenon is known as grade inflation. Max, how do Oregon schools compare to the national GPA average? So all public universities in Oregon, with the exception of Oregon State University, have a higher GPA than the national average. And what are the dangers of grade inflation? Why is this such a bad thing? For this, I'm just going to quote from a report by the Oregon Association of Scholars written by Bruce Gilley, a Portland State University political science professor. And he wrote that the average college student in Oregon today is receiving a B-plus grade, which means that there is little meaningful distinction between excellent and average students. This compression of grades prevents employers, parents, graduate schools, and public agencies from acquiring meaningful information on a student's attainments in college. Basically, it means that if you graduate from an Oregon university and you have a high GPA, it may not be worth as much as someone graduating from another university with a lower GPA or a higher GPA. It's harder to determine which students really stand out from the rest. Are there any measures being taken to handle this problem? So grade inflation hasn't been discussed by the UO Senate faculty since 2011. One of the sources involved in this story, Ian McNeely, is an associate dean with the College of Arts and Sciences. And he said it's kind of like Halley's Comet. It pops up for discussion every once in a while, and then it disappears, and we don't really hear about it again for years. McNeely did propose some potential countermeasures against inflation, such as departments developing specific grading standards and establishing general descriptions of what constitutes an A, a B, or a C. Departments should also regulate the grading practices and habits of its professors. Uh, the third counter effort focused on student transcripts showing what percentage of the class received the same grade. There's an incentive for professors not to inflate grades since it may look bad on a student's transcript. And have any of those had any effect on grade inflation or have they moved forward? The first proposal, Department Standards for Grades, passed in the Senate, but not every department has complied and the other two proposals didn't pass. What do we know about grade inflation specifically here at the U of O? So McNeely published a report in 2006 that stated that between 1992 and 2004, the percentage of A's awarded went up from 31.3% to 41.6%, about 10 points. And the percentage of A's and B's went up from 65.6% to 72.6%, about a 7-point increase. And lastly, can we explain what the Emerald Grade Tracker up on the Emerald website is, engineered by Perry Langlois? In an effort to examine grading trends at the UO, the Emerald has 
gathered three years of professor-specific statistics for grade distributions for more than 15,000 classes. You can use this tracker and search by course number to look up the grade distribution from various instructors around campus. So you select the term, you select the class. The If you want to look up a, a journalism class, you look up J101 for spring 2015, and it will show you the grade distribution in that class. Now, it's important to note that if you're looking for a class that had 10 or fewer students in the class, it's not going to be there. Because those classes are so small, there's a fear that students would be easily recognized, either students themselves and or their grades. So when the Emerald requested this data, that data was redacted. Have you used the grade tracker to look at classes that you plan on registering for next term? I am actually graduating in March, so I did not use it for that. But I did look up my classes, and for the most part, it made me feel a lot worse because I thought that I was a good student and then I found out that everyone was getting good grades. So that's that's my story. Very good. Let's segue. This is called a pivot. Craig, for those who aren't tuned into the 80s LA punk rock scene, how would you explain who Mike Watt is? Mike Watt, like you said, is best known as being the basis for the Minutemen, but since 1985 when D. Boone, who was his creative partner, died, he has played in literally dozens of bands, including everyone from Sonic Youth to Kelly Clarkson. Like he's He's been around. He was part of Double Knuckles on the Dime in 1984, which Rolling Stone has listed as the 413th greatest album of all time. In my mind, he's one of the great bass players alive. He was a pioneer of the DIY punk scene like they... It was basically the three of them. They toured across the country. They came, they saw, they conquered. To this day, he still drives the van himself, and he is basically what you get if you combine hardcore punk with bebop jazz. He is, it's soldier child dressed in flannel, basically. So Okay, and you've, you've hyped it up all week, but tell me a bit about your interview with Watt. It was fascinating. He just has such an intriguing way of looking at the world. Like, at one point, he was telling me about writing songs with D. Boone, and then he just says, you know what? I just found out that they built the roads in Rome without wheelbarrows. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so he just started talking about this. But, I mean, he grew up in naval housing. And the one book he had in his house was the World Factbook Encyclopedia. So he read it from A to Z. And his mind just, to this day, kind of works similarly, where something will spark a thought with him. And he'll go from, you know, writing songs to Shakespeare. And then he'll talk about philosophy. And then he ties it back into music. And it was just incredible to... <laughs> to see how he works. And how was the show from Thursday night? You know, he's been one of my favorite bass players for years, and seeing him in person, I was blown away by how actually just amazing he is. You know, like sometimes you have expectations that are shattered, and this was definitely one of those times. Let's play a clip from your interview with Mike Watt. Would you mind framing it? Would you mind introducing it? Sure. So I'd asked him about how he approached making music with the Minutemen, because he has pretty... A quote he talks about a lot where he says D. Boone wanted the guitar to be super trebly sounding so the bass would have its own presence and then the drums would stand out on its own. So after I asked him that, he talked about how he writes a song. So this is what this clip is about. There have been interviews in the past where you say you, D. Boone would set his guitar super trebly just so the bass would have its own distinct space. So how did that... Yeah, yeah, well that was the political part, I think. Yeah. Yeah, D. Boone called the lyrics more thinking out loud. He thought the real politics was in the way we organized the band. He wanted more room for the drums and the bass. Yeah, so how'd, how'd yeah, that... I was into that. <laughs> how'd that affect how you approach playing bass, though? Because it's uh, what well, you're familiar with. I still think, you know, when I write songs, I have to come up with a title first. I think you have to have a focus. Okay. You're trying to get something across. Now, 
what that is is not that definite. It can be a lot of different things. It can be many things at the same time. But you're trying to get something across. So all that stuff you're doing, coming up with rhythm, words, melody, space, they're all a device to help you realize what you want down the road. Okay. Okay. So whatever it takes. Now, what usually what I like to do, like I was telling you, I like to compose on the bass because uh, the people you, you coming in, the bass is not so much harmonic content. So it, uh, as opposed to piano or a guitar that most people, you know, make the demo with. Mm-hmm. So the people you're collaborating with, for example, Nels Klein, who loves this stuff, you're more like a springboard. You're more like a launch pad, and you're not so much like the big storyboard. You know what I mean? You're not. Yeah. So, uh, you're leaving more for you, the guys you're going to play with, so they can bring in their personas. I think that's what makes music. What you're trying to do when you get more than one guy playing is get a conversation going. Yeah. Even if you're trying to realize some kind of thing, like uh, like these operas or. Um, something to tune, you know, working men are pissed. You know, I'm, t- I'm trying to make that, but I want, I want all the instruments and the way they're being played or not played to aid in a bet with that mission. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can stumble. It doesn't always come out right. You can check out all the stories we talked about today, plus the Daily Emerald grade tracker at dailyemerald.com. That's all we have time for today. My name is Emerson Malone. I'm Max Thornberry. I'm Craig Wright. And if you want to hear more from the Emerald Podcast Network, just take a guess where you can listen to them. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can subscribe on SoundCloud. You can listen to them right on the Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thanks for listening.